Let's say a quick prayer, and uh, we're going to do installment number three of our series, I Have an Announcement. Uh, Father God, we're just going to pause in this space to recognize you and to thank you for the good news that you have given and provided for us. And for my brothers and sisters here and listening to this message, I pray that we would just be open once again to this story that perhaps we've heard many, many times. But as we hear it again and contemplate it again, may we be touched again, transformed again by just how this news radically upended and shifted and transformed everything about what we know, what we think, what we believe, how we behave. So let us embrace that and enter into that in a whole new way today, once again, in your name. Amen. Well, the first week I handed out cards. They are actually on your chairs. You can begin handing those out again if you'd like. You only need one today. Last week, I handed out stress balls. And for those of you who weren't here last week and are really bummed that you didn't get a stress ball, guess what? They are here and there's extras for you. So if you're interested, please make sure that you come and grab one of those. This week, we're going to do installment number three of our series on the good news, the gospel, entitled, I Have an Announcement. And what I'd like for you to do, this is your exercise. Please take a crayon. I also have writing utensils up here. And this is what I want you to do. I want you to draw a picture of God. I want you to draw a picture of God. Now, some of you are going to think this is a little childish and elementary. That's fine. I totally understand. But there's a reason behind this. And uh, maybe I'll just give you a little bit of a preview. Psychologists and researchers actually have adults do this for studies. So this is, while it may seem a little bit childish or a little bit like children, but I also want you to think and consider, when I ask you the question, draw a picture of God, what actually comes to mind? What, what's the thing that emerges? So take a few moments, and I would love for you to just draw a picture of God. No further guidance or directions, but go ahead and engage. And I love this exercise, too, because even the children that are here at the table that are able, they can also draw a picture of God as well. So take a few moments and go ahead and draw a picture of God if you feel so comfortable and so led. Again, this, we're a no-pressure, guilt-free kind of place, so if you don't want to, that's totally cool. No, no condemnation, no judgment, but you'll see where this is going in a few moments. Okay, friends, I hope you have a nice picture, something that represents a little bit of your image or your picture of God. This is one of my favorite things to do, is to search for pictures of children being asked this particular question. I wish God could give radioactive powers. Age, Brandon, age eight. So here's one picture. These are pictures, of, uh, pictures that were drawn by children who were asked this same question. Draw a picture of God. Here's another one. God is a superhero for the world. Age five. A couple of things that you immediately notice. God has a face as a body. There's a corporeal essence or a corporeal nature to God. Uh, this one is very interesting. This is uh, Emerson, age 12. Inside the head is written Islam, Buddhism, 
Judaism, Hinduism, monks, science, Taoism, Christianity. Is there really a God? God question mark with the person speaking, um, who is God? So somewhere along the lines, this 12-year-old obviously got uh, some good exposure, some good teaching. God has giant ears, so he can hear everything we are saying. Nice beard, very piercing eyes. You feel judged already just by looking at that image, don't you? Yes. This one's fascinating. God is either a woman or a man. I'm not sure which. Neither do you. So I drew God half woman, half man. Nice. Very nice. God doesn't sleep because he watches over us all the time. There we are around the world. God's very, very happy up there and wears lipstick. This is one of my favorites, God at his cloud desk. Uh, someone from uh, Silicon Valley, perhaps, age 11. When God gets mad, he lets out the thunder and throws lightning around. Olivia, age 12. I'm sure many of us are familiar with this image. Some of us actually may still be living with this image. God lives here, anonymous. No images, just a forest, trees, nature. And then two more, I believe. I believe that God is just a theory of the human mind. God lives wherever you imagine. God wears whatever you imagine. God cannot change the past, present, or future. To believe in God, you need to imagine. God does anything you can imagine. God is not male nor female, age 11. Really incredible depth, burgeoning philosopher in this one. And this one is perhaps my favorite. God lives inside every living thing, so my doctor has seen God when he cuts people open. <laughs> Love it. Today, I want to talk about God. Now, perhaps that's surprising. Hopefully, it's not terribly surprising given that we're a church. A couple of weeks ago, maybe this was a couple months ago, um, somebody was preaching, maybe Danielle, and I was with the kids. And after the service, uh, one of the children, I think it was Audrey, actually, I don't recall exactly who it was, came up and asked me the question, why is he called God? What a fantastic question. Why is he called God? I said, well, does the word God sound to you like the word good? And in fact, that is where the word comes from. You know, it's a very harsh sounding. People who have studied language as well as religions for a long time have suggested that the word God, even in its linguistic form, is meant to invoke some sort of harshness because of the way that the word good has been shortened and because of the harshness of the consonants and all those different types of things. And that's really fascinating to consider. Why do we use the word God? This is not the word, of course, that has been used throughout history. It's the word that we use. It's the word that most is familiar to us. When you Google the word God, you come up with 1.66 billion Results. I was a little sad that it wasn't 1.77 
billion results. Nonetheless, you can see that there's obviously a lot of conversation, a lot of discussion. The very first result that comes back when you search the word God is, of course, Wikipedia. And the image that is ascribed to God is a dot in a circle with a circle surrounding it with the description. The circle dot is an ancient symbol for the metaphysical absolute. Early science, particularly geometry and astrology and astronomy, was connected to the divine for most medieval scholars. And many believed that there was something intrinsically divine or perfect that could be found in circles. This is a classical definition of God or a historical one, one where people have considered or thought about the divine. What is that thing or person that we call God? And of course, if you've been around in church for a little while or studied even elementary theology or, uh, or uh, philosophy, you're familiar with the omni-words about God. Omniscient, which means that God is all-knowing. Omnipotent, which means that God is all-powerful. Omnipresent, which means that God is all places or is everywhere. And then one that many Christian theologians are starting to use, omnibenevolent, which is the idea or description that God is all good. When I first went to Bible college, this was one of the exercises that we participated in. God is, what does it say? Nowhere. God is now here. And this was used as an illustration to describe the paradox that exists in this person, this thing that we call God. God is nowhere, and God is now here all at the same time. Now, I know I had you draw some pictures of God. I would be fascinated to know, obviously, we won't go through all of them, and we'll keep them private unless you'd love to share, and I'd love to see, and you'd like to share and have that be a conversation piece for later on. But I would imagine most of you actually didn't draw faces because psychologists have noted that as we grow older, our understanding or our idea of the divine begins to abstract. And so we think of God when we're young, as was noted in the images before, we think of God in very personal, physical, what we would call anthropomorphic terms, the idea that God takes the shape of humanity, which is why in many of those pictures that we showed, God has a face, eyes, hair, a body, and the descriptions about God are described in human terms. And as we grow older, maybe we grow more sophisticated, but as we grow up and learn more about the world and study and get into philosophy and theology, the ideas about God begin to become more abstract, conceptual. That's where the omni words come in, the big theological terms about this all-divine being, this all-present thing. But even though your drawing may seem like a I don't know, silly exercise or a young exercise for adults of very sophisticated Silicon Valley stature. The reality is we've been drawing pictures of God for a very, very long time. And we keep drawing pictures of God. This, of course, being one of the most famous. And art critics, as well as those of you who study this history, get to share all sorts of interpretations. What does this mean? Adam, the preeminent human being and God, the divine being, are so close to touching, yet not quite able to touch. And what does that mean in the space that comes between? 
Several weeks ago, Diana Butler-Bass shared with us her thoughts about a God that looks down from heaven, and she used this image to describe a concept of God that is fatherly, that is male, that is white, but that is up and high and looking down. Some drawings and depictions of God are very ethereal. They're very imaginative in the clouds, shadows, the idea that whatever happens to be outside of this world or above this world or transcendent of this world is fuzzy. We can't quite see it. It's a little bit looking through a mist. And then, of course, people make movies about this, my favorite being Evan Almighty, and then we create our own other images of God, which is one of my favorites. The ancients, of course, are very aware of this. We are, in many ways, not so much unlike them. They have gone through the great lengths of trying to make those descriptions as well, and not only just drawings, but philosophies as well as statues, as well as carvings, and all the stuff that many of you already know and have studied. We've been doing this a long time. And what's fascinating is that those descriptions, those depictions, the drawings that you make, the definitions that we use, the words and the language that we deploy when we talk about the divine, when we talk about the God, actually shows us, or in some ways betrays for us, what we actually believe about God. In fact, the more and more we use the terms God, and the more and more maybe some of you who grew up in an evangelical or Christian context, you were taught to defend the existence of God, or you were taught to make sure that you got your theology right, and all of these, all of these kinds of language— Every time we deploy that language, every time we deploy those kinds of ideas in theology, we're actually describing in that defense what we believe about God and what we believe we know about God. Which is, honestly, a little dangerous at times. So we've made these depictions, we've made these ideas, we've made these definitions based upon the very best inkling, grabbing, withholding, trying, struggling, striving, pontificating, philosophizing about what is God. Recently, not only just these authors, but many, many more have started to upend traditional theologies. We've talked about this many, many times. That the standard definitions of the creedal statements, the omnis that we talked about before, are no longer working in the same way. And so recent shifts and changes and turns in people talking about God have started to talk about God in experiential terms. Well, God is no longer a thing or a person, but God is really the experience of consciousness. Uh, God is found in the mysterious ways that we understand the very nature of this universe all the way down to particle physics. Uh, God is in all things, as Diana Butler-Bass has shared with us, that God is not up there but is out here. And so there's lots of different ways now in which people are starting to still grasp and strive and understand how this God is experienced. These books, as well as others and other authors and many people that are talking about this, fall into the lines of a tradition that some, not all, but some would say have roots with Blaise Pascal, the famous 17th century French um, mathematician and scientist. He has this famous quote that I've mentioned here before in, in a talk many, many uh, years ago that is now known as the Night of Fire, 1654. And 
when he passed away, people found this, what I'm about to read, sewed into the inside of his jacket. And he writes, fire, God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob. Now notice this, not of philosophers and scholars. Certainty, certainty, heartfelt joy, peace. God of Jesus Christ, God of Jesus Christ, my God and your God. Thy God shall be my God, the world forgotten and everything except God. He can only be found by the ways taught in the Gospels, greatness of the human soul. O righteous Father, the world had not known thee, but I have known thee. Joy, 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 tears of joy. I have cut myself off from him. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. My God, wilt thou forsake me? Let me not be cut off from him forever. And this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. I have cut myself off from him, shunned him, denied him, crucified him. Let me never be cut off from him. He can only be kept by the ways taught in the gospel. Sweet and total renunciation, total submission to Jesus Christ and my director. Everlasting joy in return for one day's effort on earth. I will not forget thy word. Amen. And scholars of Pascal have suggested and noted that this is not, as he mentions in his writing, not the God of philosophers or theologians or a definition of God but getting to an experience. Something is radically shifting or changing in how Blaise Pascal is observing and interacting with the world or with this God. And so many people, even to this day, are starting to do this wrestling and this challenging. And there's a lot of questions, of course, that come up. What's really real? Because for all of those generations, all the way back to the very beginning, your definition of God seemed to be real. And then something happens, something changes, you grow up, and then you realize maybe that wasn't reality. Maybe my definition or my understanding of God is a little bit more fuzzy. Many of us are going through that exact same thing. The very faith, the very foundation, the very Christianity, the very tradition that we knew, that we understood at the very beginning, when we grow up and we have our awakening, those definitions don't work anymore. And many of us just Leave it to the side. This question emerges for me. How can God, God, whatever that definition or term is, be talked about in these many different disparate and even contradictory ways? This is a big question. One that I imagine that we will be talking about for the rest of our existence. I think I can say that pretty safely. That this question is probably more a question than an answer and will probably never be answered. Now, my goal today is to give you that as an introduction. Not to dive deep into the philosophy or dive deep into the science or dive deep into the theology and how all that works together and give you the answer. This is a series about the good news, the gospel about Jesus Christ, the gospel of the life, death, burial, resurrection of Jesus. That's what this series is about. And the reason why I go through all of that is because our scriptures, this story that we are telling, actually dives head first right into this dilemma that people have been discussing and debating about for many, many millennia. What is the nature of God? Well, Paul, the 
progenitor, the guy who is speaking boldly and widely about Christian faith, which is, you know, one of the main reasons why we're all here, starts off Romans 1 by saying, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Now, there are several terms that are used in our Bibles, the gospel of Jesus Christ, but here, Paul uses the term the gospel or the good news of God. The word there is the word theos. Many of you know this, that the Greek term theos is the word, the generic term for the word God, which is where we get our word theology. And so my hope and my goal here today is not to dive headlong into the philosophical debate or the philosophical issue about who or what God is, thing, person, etc. But to ask the question, what is the claim that Christians are fundamentally making about God through the gospel of Jesus? What is the claim that Christians are making about God? This isn't just a story about Jesus and the disciples. This is a story also about God. The good news, according to our text and according to our history and our heritage, is God news. It is declaring something about God. Now, you've heard me give long swaths of history. I don't want to do that to you today. That was last week. That was pretty heavy. Let me just share with you a little bit about where this comes from in our text. This is an image, an idol of the Canaanite god Baal. Baal is a Canaanite word that is carried over into the Hebrew word, which is the same root for the word El, Elohim, which is the first word that is used in the Hebrew Bible for God. Now, Elohim, coming from the word God or El, has two root letters to it. The first letter is the ox head, and this is a pictograph. You can find these written uh, all over. It's a lot of fun to see how language has developed. That's the aleph, or the first letter, and the L is the lamed, which is a shepherd's hook. And so one of the first definitions of the word God that we find growing up in the Canaanite culture, which is where Israelite and Old Testament and our history came from, is a strength or a power that is guided and directed, or a guiding and directing power. Now, throughout the Old Testament, throughout the Bible, you will find names that actually have this definition in the name itself. Many of you know this. Daniel means God is my judge. Bethel means the house of God. Emmanuel, God is with us. Gabriel, our nephew's name, man of God. Samuel, wherever Samuel is back there, name of God or God hears. Raphael means God is hearing. Whatever that definition, that creator, the power, the guiding direction, the early Israelites believed in this God so much that they wove the very name of God into the names of their people, so much so that we have those names today. And then later on, there was this radical experience. Notice the trend that I talked about earlier, definition of God to an experience of God. Later on in the book of Exodus, one of those Israelites has an experience of God that is no longer an abstract definition, but now a personal name. And now this personal name was not some sort of abstract concept or some strength or power or ultimate divine deity in the sky, but a Yahweh, a covenantal, relational, personal, how I carried you through the desert kind of a God. Even still woven within that name, the name for the divine name of God in the Old Testament means I will be what I will 
be. So they're moving, but still holding on to these concepts that are abstract. And I'm going to suggest to you that this is the tension in every single definition, every trend, every movement, every evolution of our discussion about God. Everywhere I have looked, and maybe some of you can help me understand this a little bit better, there is this struggle and this tension and this fight between an abstract definition, a conceptual understanding of a divine reality, but a very concrete experience. I felt it in my bones. Fire, fire, as Pascal says. Something that is here, a face that I can see, a warmth that I can feel, a rock that I can depend on, a door that I can open, a light that illuminates the path. Concrete, abstract. Concrete, abstract. Both of those things are constantly in tension throughout the history of talking about God, at least in my estimation, even to this day. So that when you're having conversations or you see news reports or you listen to pastors or teachers or whatever it is that you're listening to, somewhere in the discussion of God is going to be either a very abstract definition or a very concrete one or something in between. So, again, let me remind us, my hope is not to get into that discussion and to resolve it. What does the gospel of Jesus have to say about this? Well, fundamentally, the Christian message has been from very, very early on, the idea that this God, that word God, the understanding of God, both El and Yahweh, has met something radically different that has never happened in history before. It is that that God has become incarnate, put flesh on, become human just like you and I, so much so that the first followers of Jesus didn't even know, recognize, understand, would never have said that Jesus is God. Jesus was Jesus. First century Galilean carpenter walking around in sandals, that kind of thing. But these people, very early on at some particular point in this development, saw and believed that the conceptual idea of that God of history, even that personal God of Yahweh, had come and become flesh. And this is what radically shifts and changes their understanding of God in the person of Jesus. This is the symbol of the Trinity. The Trinity is a fancy word to just simply mean three in one. And of course, theologians have debated for years and years and years about what that, actu that actually means. I won't do that now. But fundamentally, the concept that whatever you think, whatever you believe, however you've understood God, El, Yahweh, in the past, however you have philosophized about it, however you have debated about it, however much you have had that discussion in your mind, this God, this God is in flesh here. There's a couple passages that help to illuminate this. Matthew chapter 1, verse 23. Look, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall name him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. Matthew chapter 1. John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was. There's that conceptual idea about who God is. Verse 14, the Word becomes flesh. And then, in Acts chapter 17, there's this lengthy passage that I wanted to read for you that explains a little bit of how Paul understood how to communicate about this God in really astounding ways. So it's a fairly lengthy passage, 
But here he is in the city of Athens. And this is what he writes. Or this is what uh, the book of Acts writes. Which takes this idea of a concept and all the idols and really drives it home. Because what Paul is going to say about Jesus here is profound or at least very, very central to his understanding or his idea of the good news. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. Because he had just been walking around seeing all these idols. And naked idols, by the way, for those of you who know Greek mythology, so he's probably very offended as a Jew. For as I walked around and looked carefully, which is a funny thing to say after what I just said, uh, at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I am going to proclaim to you. Notice he's talking about their understanding or their grasping at a definition or an understanding of God, and he's saying, let me tell you about that God, that Theos that you have been worshiping. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands, and he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he He himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all the nations, that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Now listen to how he turns. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. Paul goes into this deeply philosophical religious place and says, that God that you've been worshiping, let me tell you about that God. That God doesn't live in those temples. He doesn't live in that gold. It's this man who was raised from the dead. Think about that for a second. If you've been a Greek worshiping these idols for as long as you've been worshiping, then all of a sudden somebody comes along and says, this Jesus is that God that you have been worshiping, something's got a fritz in your brain. But that's exactly what he's suggesting. Now, there's a lot more to discuss about this. The idea that the God that people worship, the God that the Hebrews have worshiped, has come down in flesh or come down and become this man. But some theologians, some philosophers talk about The ancient understanding of God has been mythologized. It's the idea of creating some sort of interesting or imaginative story around these understandings. And what some people are going to suggest happens with the incarnation and the coming of Jesus and the declaration of the good news about Jesus is this goes away. That the mythologies that we develop, these interesting, abstract, imaginative ideas is fundamentally taken down. And what is known as a demythologizing of God. Which, when I first read this, thought, that sounds really odd. Because don't you want to get up and understand God in these higher conceptual frameworks? And the answer is, 
according to what seems to be happening in the good news about Jesus, is that all of those frameworks are becoming much more concrete down here. Not an imaginative mythology, a story about a person. There's all sorts of implications I wish I had time to share with you. We've talked a lot about sacred versus secular, about how some portions of this world are sacred, set aside for God, and other portions of this world are completely secular, and they're bound to wound up in the fires and the pit of hell. And one of the things that this does is it destroys all of that. It says, no, this physical thing is sacred. This world that we live in is sacred. The life The birth, the death, all of that is sacred. You're living right now in a sacred place. The question is not sacred versus secular. The question is, do we see it? Do we recognize it? Do we know it? Do we understand it as a sacred place? The first week I talked about how the good news is bad news for some. Last week I talked about how the wars set the tone and the place for the development of the good news and the pain and the struggle. And this week, I'd like to end with all of that stuff that I just shared with a fairly lengthy quote from N.T. Wright's Simply Good News. With the idea of all of that, if you're trying to pull all of that to this understanding, abstract God, concrete God, the question then is, what is this God that the good news is declaring? Well, here is N.T. Wright's summation of that. Let's put it like this. The Jewish people of the first century were expecting their God to come back in person to rescue them, revealing his glorious presence, defeating their enemies, and reestablishing them as his people once and for all, which goes back to last week's message. They got Jesus. I love that line. This is central to the good news Jesus announced. It isn't just that God is becoming king through Jesus and what he is doing, but that God's kingship is a different sort of kingship altogether. There is a different kind of power, and it is the power of the gospel, the power announced by the gospel, the power wielded by the gospel. It is the power neither of brute force nor of superior argument. Notice that philosophical allusion right there but of something that goes much deeper into every area of human life. The early Christians called it the power of agape, which is the Greek word for love. Our modern word love doesn't begin to get near what they meant by that, but it will have to do for the moment as a signpost to a great multidimensional all-embracing energy which swept people off their feet in the first century and continues to do so today. The kingdoms of the world run on, run on violence. The kingdom of God, Jesus declared, runs on love. This is the good news. Fundamentally, my friends, whatever definition, abstract, concept, idea, picture, image you have of God, which you can debate and discuss all the time, which is fun to do, my hope is just, just simply share that this good news is making a bold claim that all of that is fundamentally secondary to the primary understanding of a God of love. And that comes in the midst of the previous two messages that we talked about, comes in the midst of evil and empire and war and oppression. This God 
is a God of love. Now, that sounds so simple, cliche almost, but next time you have a discussion and a debate or a challenge or a wrestling about your understanding of God, try asking yourself, do I fundamentally at the core of my being understand love? And my guess is that most of us in this room, including myself, are still struggling to understand and realize and experience what fundamental, ultimate, agape, unconditional love actually is. We're still wrestling. We're still striving. Why? Because we're having to do some hard work of wrestling with all those conceptual ideas of God that we've had. Andrew Newberg has written this incredible book, How God Changes Your Brain. Uh, He talks a little bit about how... um, Thinking about God actually makes you live longer, so I thought this should be our new tagline, come to church and live longer. But anyway, he's, done, he's a neurobiologist, and he's done a lot of studies, you know, fMRI scans of people when they pray and when they meditate, and there's a lot of research in here. Here's one of the things that he has talked about, about your conception, your idea about God. Indeed, meditating on any form of love, including God's love, appears to strengthen the same neurological circuits that allow us to feel compassion towards others. In contrast, religious activities that focus on fear may damage the anterior cingulate. And when this happens, a person will often lose interest in other people's concerns or act aggressively against them. We suspect that fear-based religions may even create symptoms that mirror post-traumatic stress disorder. Brain scan studies have shown that once you anticipate a future negative event, activity in the amygdala, the fear center, is turned up and activity in the anterior cingulate is turned down. This generates higher levels of neuroticism and anxiety. Highly anxious individuals may be attracted to fundamentalist religions because they offer a highly structured belief system that reduces feelings of uncertainty. In this respect, membership in a strict religious order can reduce feelings of anger, anxiety, and fear. And once you are accepted as a member, you will be joyously embraced by the entire congregation. This, we believe, will have a positive effect on the anterior cingulate in the development of compassionate feelings towards oneself and others and other members of the group. However... If the community emphasizes disdain towards members of other groups, this will ultimately inhibit the functioning of the anterior cingulate. If you want to maintain a healthy anterior cingulate cortex, frontal cortex, and limbic system, all those parts of your brain, by all means, meditate and pray, but only on those concepts that bring you a sense of love, joy, optimism, and hope. In other words, what you believe about God changes your brain. And for the thousands of years that we've been discussing and challenging and debating and philosophizing about concepts of God and all that stuff, this gospel, the good news about Jesus, has come down and said fundamentally, this God is about love. And no wonder that definition, that understanding, that visceral awareness transformed how they lived in this world. And for years and years and years... Many of us have experienced this God, and we're still, we do have PTSD. This makes a lot of sense. So that when we think about church, when we think about God, when we think about giving, when we think about serving, when we think about spirituality or any of this stuff, there is a reaction that comes. If this has been the way that we've thought about God in the past, no wonder we're having difficulty and challenge. This gospel, this good news about Jesus comes in and crushes that. And says, 
We are claiming and declaring that this God that exists, that is, that does not exist, that is everywhere, that is nowhere, however you define, this God is ultimately love. And maybe now, turn your paper over, if you so choose, I'm out of time, but now draw a picture of God. This is the exercise I was hoping to do at the end, but you can do this on your own time. What do you see? What do you experience? What do you understand? What do you draw when you think of a God that is fundamentally at its core love? No fear, no anxiety, no concern about the future, love. What does that do to your brain? I would encourage you at some particular point, maybe this week, Take your piece of paper home. Look at the picture you drew at the beginning of the message. Turn it over and think and process. Meditate on the definition of God as love and then draw and see what happens and make this a practice of your life. And hopefully that will radically transform. This gospel of Jesus declares, makes the claim that this God is a God of love.